Today's episode, we go deep into the world of finance, and I've got no one better than Redim Syed, who's actually the ex-treasury economist, or not the, but a ex-treasury economist, five times Mortgage Professionals Australia top 100 broker, and he's also host of the Australian Property Talk podcast. Now, Redim actually is one of the directors at Confidence Finance, and by the way, if you haven't already checked out this stuff, it's confidencefinance.com.au. They've got an awesome guide you should definitely check out, which is 11 Aussie property market predictions for 2023. And by the end of this episode, you'll definitely see why it's worth checking that out and downloading it after you hear from someone with uh, the experience and credentials that Redem has. Now, in today's episode, we go deep into many aspects of finance. Well, firstly, we start high level and talk about, I guess, the role finance plays and the, the market shifts that it can have. And We've seen a lot of the data flow through over the last 12 months, borrowing capacities, you know, what's really driving it, what's behind it, and uh, I guess, why is it different when you consider refinances are happening, but others are saying borrowing capacities dropped a lot. Now, we also go into some of the things that influence borrowing capacity, so you can have a better idea of how to make some improvements in that space. And then when it comes to your portfolio management, we also dive deep into how you should balance out finding the best rate versus getting the deal done. I'm confident you'll also get some extra tips. In fact, Redim actually drops a few tips around a few effective ways to scale up your capacity by an extra 100k. That extra 100k could be the difference between you on the sidelines or you buying the property and then also diving deep into the different loan setups, IO, principal and interest, cash out, cross collateral, fixed variable, all that sort of stuff. So you can tell this episode is going to be jam packed of value and I'm very glad I've got the right guest with me to help out in making sure we deliver some amazing insights to you all to make sure that you know you can be on the right track with your wealth building journey. That's it and check it out and that's again Rhythm from confidencefinance.com.au. We jumps right in. Rhythm, I've uh, already told the guests a lot about you from your treasury background, your broker awards, and and whatnot. There's a lot of cool, exciting, and knowledgeable, very credible things there, but. I guess just to get straight into some of the exciting insights you've got to share, let's take a step back from the world of property and actually talk finance at the highest level. Could you give me some insight on A, what role finance plays in the shifting of markets, as well as even just the rental markets in, in recent years? It would be great to get your thoughts. So Australia is a big country. Um, there's lots of different property markets, but the major market largely driven by what happens to credit markets and the flow of events that happen in the credit markets point signals as to what may happen on the ground. So we've seen that over the past five or six years, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. So we've done a little bit of research that correlates what a sort of home buyer, a fairly high income home buyer looks like in Sydney and seen how their borrowing capacities change year on year. So we've done this from 2016 all the way to 2023. And if you correlate that data with house price direction and movements, you'll see a lot of correlation between Sydney and Melbourne house price changes and what's happening to borrowing capacities. So that's just one example of how credit plays a huge role in what's happening in property market. So we've had that belief. It also gives us signals as to which buyer groups are most impacted and which buyer groups may be you know, increasing their activity and which buyer groups may need to reduce their activity because their availability of credit has been reduced to them. So credit is one of the best lead indicators to track for what you 
for what's going to happen on the ground in property markets, particularly in these cities. And yeah, it has an impact on rental markets as well. We've seen that with investor credit um, because investors are the ones who are typically providing rental accommodation. So if you dry up investor credit, then you'll likely see rental accommodation dry up too. So since 2015, there's been a whole range of sort of investor credit changes. 2015, there were like changes to borrowing capacity, 2017, interest-only lending, and more recently with all the rate increases, that impacts investor lending too, quite dramatically. So you've seen investor lending as a share of total lending fall, and that's you know presenting in the rental market currently. Yeah, and I think the main thing just hearing that is like, people aren't walking around with lots of cash and buying property just pure cash. Look, I know a few few people that have, I'm not saying doesn't exist, but finance is the engine room of property. And you raise a really good point around the fact that it's forward looking, forward moving, and it kind of starts that off for many. And there is that trend correlation. I think where I've probably noticed, and this is more just for my fellow data lovers out there, is that where the differences show up is when you just start getting micro, right? Because finance data gets stuck at state levels typically, and Sydney, your Melbournes correlate, Brisbane even to an extent correlates really well with the state level data. And then it starts to spread a little bit as you go to micro. But such a good point as well on the rental crisis that we're in, because what many people forget is that, you know, rentals and rental properties need investors, right? And if investor finance keeps going lower and lower, someone always said to me, well, hey, wait, isn't there a short-term gain that an investor is not buying and a homeowner is? Correct. Some homeowner has taken an advantageous position, but the pool has to forever exist. And if that keeps shrinking, no wonder why the rents kept growing. So it makes really good sense then. Thank you for taking that step back. Um, Ritam, when it comes to, I guess, borrowing capacities, that's another good flow on point because that's been a big part reason of the finance trends falling off recently. They've been slashed substantially in recent years. And yet what's interesting is refinances continue to boom, right? So when it comes to refinances booming, but finance slowing, what's driving this? And what can you see that's, I guess, some of the trends emerging from your review of finance? Yeah, we have definitely seen that as a business, as a marketplace. So refinance activity is at record highs, while total new lending volumes are down, what, 30% this year, and and that fall is increasing month on month as well. So um, why is a good question. You know, the cost of credit has increased, and when you increase the price of a loan, you're increasing the total price of owning that property as well. The cost has increased. So because of that, when you increase the price of anything, it's just the supply-demand curves happening there's less demand for it. So when someone goes and buys a home, that's new lending. So it's new credit being added to the system. Refinancing isn't new credit. It's just replacing the existing credit that someone has from one bank to another. So that person is already already has that product. The price of that product has just risen. So they're just swapping from one provider to another. And when the price of something changes, it actually motivates like psychologically to go and take a look at the product that you have. So in this case, it's a home loan. So people are looking at their home loans and swapping providers because they're more price conscious now. And, and a big reason is the fixed rate expiries that are occurring in the marketplace. There was a huge ramp up in fixed rate loans. Everyone knows about this now, but a lot of those are rolling off this year. And fixed rates are probably the number one trigger point for someone to look at their loan. You know, they get letters in the mail from their bank provider, you know, 
they'll get text messages from their brokers. You know, they get a lot of bombarded information saying, hey, your repayment's about to increase. That makes people take a look. And when people take a look, that's when refinancing activity, they're more motivated to refinance because they're going to do something to their loan anyway. So they shop around and then they refinance. So that's really the reasons why, you know, it's new credit. People want less of that, but refinancing isn't new credit. It's replacing existing credit. So you're going to face that price increase anyway. So it's just shopping around. So that's probably why we see this dynamic. Yeah. And I think there's two things I instantly read from this. What you shared is really powerful. One is that people aren't as stuck as people are led to believe, right? Because refinance involves movement. It isn't just, you know, you staying with the same bank and refinancing the same product. You're being assessed again. So if we're seeing a refinance boom, we're also seeing an assessment boom and therefore a movement boom. And so people aren't as fixed as people say they are or troubled as they are. The second thing that you made me realize, and and it's something that's often forgotten in the world of economists, is people often treat the housing market like a chart. And with that chart, if A equals B, A plus B must always equal C. And we often forget that 65% of housing that sits in Australia has someone living in it for the purpose of shelter in their own home, not renting, own home. And so when I think of that, I think of, well, majority of Australians are not going to be like a spreadsheet fixed rate expiry. Oh my God, I'm done because the sheet said I'm done. The chart said I'm done. You're proving to us that people are proactive. People will make decisions for their interest and to not lose that shelter over their head. And so it shows the importance of refinance that's happening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You touched on a point there as well. When you refinance, you need to be reassessed. So what we're also seeing is a high quality of loan boom, because if you can refinance your loan now, you are being assessed at, what, 8.5% interest rates plus. So this is the highest assessment rate we've had in over a decade, like at least in my eight years of lending, we've never had an assessment rate above seven and a half. And now we're at eight and a half and 9% potentially for investors. So if you, you also, refinances are typically low, lower than 80% loan to value ratio. So most people above 80% are not refinancing and repaying mortgage insurance. So what you have is high quality borrowers and banks competing for this refinance pool of people who can pass these serviceability tests who are typically high quality. So that is also occurring. So the quality of one's mortgage book is is rising. And if you can refinance in this environment, it probably means that your affordability is very strong. You know, it's the toughest sort of environment we've had in a long time. And you could still pass these serviceability tests likely means that your affordability is very strong. Yeah, that's a good point. It shows that quality borrowers are making moves in Australia and from the sounds of the refinance volumes, there's a lot of quality borrowers around. Now, uh, when it comes to the things, I guess, consumers may be less aware of, and this is going into your secret and hidden world of all the finance tips and things, or maybe things that haven't come in now, but now going to come in. What are some of the things that banks are eyeing up, regulators are eyeing up, whether it be positive for borrowers or negative, that you think would be some great things to share for people considering finances? Yeah. So, The starting point to this is the number one driver of availability of credit is going to be interest rates. So I generally believe that we are debt, the debt market kind of follows a property cycle and an economic cycle. It moves in cycles, has its up periods and its down periods. I genuinely believe we are at the trough period of debt markets, which should correlate to the trough period of property markets in and around now or on some sort of lag. So the reason why I say that is because 
you know, we're near the terminal cash rate or market projections of the terminal cash rate. Um, so we're at 3.6% as of today when we're recording, might increase a little bit from there, but we're close to the top. Also, we have a 3% assessment buffer on top of the interest rate that one person pays. That's an APRA set assessment buffer. And so if you're paying 5.5%, you're being assessed by the bank as if, can you afford this at 8.5%? So that 3% buffer is actually when, when it got increased from 2.5% to 3% in October 2021, it was designed as a temporary measure by the regulator at the time to slow down high debt-to-income ratio lending. So at the time, we're in the middle of a big property boom, one of the biggest property booms I've ever seen. So what that was... What was driving that was an increase in borrowing powers in Sydney and Melbourne, where the debt-to-income potential for a borrower was, you know, upwards of eight or of around eight. So that just meant people could go and get bigger loans because interest rates were zero at the at the time. And uh, on the calculate on the calculators, that just led to people being able to go get bigger loans. Now people went and did that. Twenty-five percent of all loans, or ne- nearly twenty-five percent of all loans at the time in the October quarter were a de- debt-to-income ratio above six. Now, that's kind of dialed back to around you know 11% today. And by the time the next quarter set gets released or we're in the middle of this year, that's going to be close to zero. We cannot write a loan where someone has a debt-to-income ratio above six anymore. They just do not pass serviceability. So the need for this temporary buffer goes when there is no high debt-to-income ratio. So we- we'll see that buffer come down or some version of that change occur likely later this year. I, I don't know when, but I would be very surprised if that doesn't change um, at some point in 2023. And that'll boost borrowing capacities and it'll help people refinance, get access to credit. And that's kind of why I view us at the trough, um, because that change is material. It could be up to 10% improvement in borrowing capacities. So that's a material change. So that's one big change that will drive markets uh, all across the board, particularly Sydney and Melbourne, where people borrowed to the maximums a lot more than other cities. Yeah, you touch on a point of uh, the last boom, right, in Sydney and Melbourne specifically, that actually raises multiple flow-on effects of what happened. Firstly, if you go back and look at rental and property data, there was a high proportion of investors buying and there was a sharp increase in rental vacancy rates for those two cities. And so as time went on, two things happen when property booms occur and lots of investors and lots of finance, things like that. One is the rental pool began getting bigger. And that was good for the Sydney and Melbourne renters. It was your day. Like I remember back in the days I was uh, renting across Surrey Hills and Newtown and it was like, you know, cheap as chips back then in comparison to what it is today. And so um, the first thing was that created more stock. But the second thing is it created more stock also because developers have heightened activity in times of boom. And so we saw the apartment pipeline pick up like no tomorrow between 14, 15, 16, 17. So there's also this opposite side, whilst not good for the safety of lending, hence why uh, intervention kicked in, hence why those debt to income ratios changed. There was also that opposite effect of when it came to seeing many rental properties, the pool build, and then of course the supply build in those major cities. Now you're starting to see the opposite with all that activity intervention on the opposite direction, yes, curtailed that. I guess, riskier lending, which you're clearly seeing in the data, but it also hurt the uh, the pool of rental properties in that investor take up and finance through the intervention. So it's interesting, right, how the seesaw is constant. And it reminds me of three things, right? There's always a constant of death, taxes, and credit growth. Always need credit growth. And so um, whether it's not happening now, long term, it cannot go in a downwards direction because 
prices will go downwards long term too, right? So. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I talk to borrowers about credit and how it expands over time. And the best explanation I give is credit moves in an upward curve. So it's not flat line. It's it's it could be linear if that makes sense, but it's upwards. So. In the year 2030, more credit will be available than the year 2022. So that has historically played out and you need that. Um, just like you said, it's one of the three things that a certain is. Um, so you kind of need that for the economy to function and for people to go build homes and to provide the underlying need for humans, shelter. So um, it's a need. So uh, that, that credit growth is part of the system to go and build that product for people to have. So yeah, that's a very good summary. And there's one core point off the back of that credit growth that's needed. We all talk about the beauty of investing. We chuck in five, six, seven percent on compound growth calculators and go, oh, looky, a 500k home today, 2.5 million in 20 years. Has anyone ever taken a pause to think that an 80% loan on that will also mean it's, you know, 2 million, just over 2 million in lending needed for that 500k? So I guess to me, that makes me think that the credit cycle has so much more room to grow if we expect the last 30 years of history to repeat itself. So somehow, some way, whether it be incomes, whether it be policies, whether it be you know shifts in regulation, something is going to change because if you are believing that it's not going to change and you think somehow your 500k property is going to get to this 2.5 million compounded wealth, great tool, retirement, passive income, get ready for the awakening. Credit policy will change. Yes, that's very true. And you can model out how as well. You can get into the specifics. So in my old job at Treasury, one of the things that we did was look at macroprudential sort of policies all across the world and try and inform how Australian decision-making could be made with the international context. That gave me a lens of how to view lending. And then when you're exploring all these changes, you can explore the other side of it being like, hey, look, you know, those are changes to slow down lending. But what about structural changes to improve lending over time? Now, if you need credit growth, if, if you kind of believe that as like a system requirement over a period of time, what can we do to continue to expand credit growth? A lot of people don't, a lot of people think that, you know, interest rates have floored, have hit zero. So that means credit growth won't continue going forward and capital growth will must fall and won't be able to continue going forward because the expansion of credit will slow because interest rates have already hit their 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 floor. Now part of that story is true, but there's also so many different variables that you can adjust and we're starting to see some of that. You know, one bank has a 35 year loan term. Um, that's a five year little ex extension. You know, it improves borrowing capacities by six, seven percent. Tax cuts, stage three tax cuts for Sydney siders across the country for those that have the income that's going to benefit from that. So this is 120k plus incomes. You know, that could be up to a 10% improvement in borrowing capacity wow. for a couple. Um, that's huge. Like, you know, you're talking 150, $250,000 in an increase in borrowing capacity. Mm doing nothing. Like it's just go to work, do exactly the same thing, you know, just have effectively tax cuts that are removing bracket creep um, that's occurred over the last 15 years and just giving you back the same inflation adjusted tax taxation rates, giving that back to Aussies uh, improves borrowing capacity by 10, 15%. And there's a whole range of these variables, interest rates, assessment rates, you know, changes to shadings, things like that, loan terms. Um, there's many ways to expand credit over time. And I think there's going to be conversations about this over time whenever required. Um, so yeah, it's a cool thing to talk about. And it's a cool thing to know for investors in particular, because it helps understand that if credit grows over time, then it's likely your assets will too over time too. Yeah, it's a, all, all some great points. And if you bring it to back to today, many people now may not have this foresight, may not 
have this long-term thinking and go, look, interest rates are high. I just want it to be the best rate. And so when should it be about the best rate? And when should it be not about the best rate? Because for property investors, if you're trying to scale a portfolio, again, like demand and supply is a seesaw, so is having everything on the credit side when it comes to interest rates, fees, product features. Could you give us some insights of when it makes sense to go best rate only and when it makes sense to go it's not going to happen all the time. I think that a little bit of balance needs to be put in because the marketplace has price information asymmetry. So the information about price and interest rates is not static. So the day you go apply for a loan, if it looks like the cheapest, does that mean it really is the cheapest over a period of time? Now, if you assume that product for 30 years and compare it to another product for 30 years, then it may look cheaper. But that's not how lending works. Lending changes dramatically over time and discounting increases over time as well. So going for the sharpest interest rate without the context of what this will look like going forward may actually cost you more, even if you are being price conscious. We, we can see that a little bit in the non-bank market, for example. Non-banks have typically played a little bit in the cheaper sort of marketplace, you know, 10, 20, 30 basis point discounting over major banks. We've seen a lot of that over recent years, but their funding sources are much less deposit-based. So they get their funding from wholesale markets all around the world, and those costs have risen more than uh, local domestic factors. So they are now having, so borrowers who went and sought that loan two years ago may be reverting to higher interest rates than with the major banks. So you could end, easily end up in a position where you have got the cheapest loan on day one, but on day 365 of or month 12 of your 360 month term, you could be paying more already. So understanding price is, is more important than just targeting price because markets, lenders play on this a little bit. And consumers are taken for a little bit of a ride because they don't fully understand the price of products change over a period of time. It's not static. That's probably my key advice to someone is if you are very price conscious, get as much understanding as you can about what the price of that product will look like in comparison to the market over a period of time. Yeah. And I think if you kept going for the cheapest every time, you'd be refinancing every six months as well, right? Because it's a marketplace, which means someone's not always the cheapest every time. So uh, very good points shared there. Now, when it comes to, I guess, looking at quick tips for those scalers of their portfolios, you've been producing some phenomenal content on LinkedIn. I'm an avid follower and really enjoy it. And so for anyone tuning into this, by the way, please do search up Redom and LinkedIn. And that's Redom side, R-E-D-O-M space S-Y-E-D. Firstly, the content there is frequent. The content there is uh, very impactful and it's actually actionable. And that's the thing that many people miss when they produce content. Now, I want to pull you up on some of the tips because they're awesome, right? Um, you have some very good tips and ways that you can just focus not on this will increase borrowing, but you give a fair number. Like this could help with a 100K increase in borrowing capacity. And if someone's listening to this and you think you're at three to 400K servicing, well, 100K could be the difference between you having an extra wealth building asset to not. So could you share some tips on that? So if you want to increase your borrowing power by 100K, there's a whole range of things you can do. So this is breaking down how lenders look at you and working out how to get this extra 100K. So the easiest one is to choose a lender that gives you an extra 100K without having to do anything. So you know some banks have 35-year loan terms. We've just done this for a client that needed that little bit extra and... You know, instead of going to a mainstream provider, we went to a non, it was a mainstream provider, but one that provides a 35-year loan term, 
gets that extra $100,000. So that's one way you can increase your borrowing power. Choose your lenders that will give you what you want. So that's a very simple way. Your broker, your banker should be able to do that for you. Now there's other things that you can do that you have control over. These things are often harder <laughs> harder to do than for me to say on LinkedIn. But you know you can go and ask your boss for a pay rise. A $15,000 pay rise should get you roughly a $100,000 increase in your owner-occupier borrowing power. So if you can borrow $1 million for an owner-occupier to buy a home, you can now borrow 1.1 if you had a 15k pay rise. You know, removing credit cards is one of the easiest ways. You did a wonderful post on this um, recently uh, where you talked about limits, not debts. So in Australia, it's a bit perverse, but people have credit cards. You may pay off your credit card every month, never pay any interest, but the bank still takes the limits that you have on that credit card. So if you removed nearly $20,000 worth of credit card limits, you know, seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars worth of credit card limits, you'll be able to increase your borrowing power by a hundred thousand dollars too. So personal loans and things like that will also have that same impact. And a big one, student debts as well. And um, we find that student debts, particularly for higher income earners, even if the debt is really small, like ten, fifteen, twenty thousand, if you're an income earner above a hundred thousand dollars, you'll find that that debt is is dragging your serviceability down much greater than the size of debt itself. So if you pay off your $10,000 debt, you might get a $100,000 increase in your borrowing power. So you get a 10 to 1 increase in the available credit you have by paying down the smaller debt that you have left over. So they're just a few actionable tips to really breaking down the lending calculator to your advantage. Some awesome tips there. And why don't we go actually uh, one step deeper because this is helping with a lot of quick wins and decision making and Speaking of decision-making, borrowers get many decisions thrown at them. And I guess I want to make people's lives easier in how they interpret the decision-making through your expertise support. Uh, but when they are investing, there's a few things that come up. IO versus P&I, cross-collateralization, cash out, fixed and variable, LMI, no LMI, offset redraw. Happy to take this one by one, answer them all in one go, your call, but there's five core areas where buyers either get stuck, they have back and forth, and I just want to clear the air for some in terms of how they could easily go through a decision-making matrix to see what's right for them. Yeah, so this would depend on the type of borrower. So if you're an investor borrower, um, so let's stick to investor borrowers in, in, in this breakdown, some of these questions get a little bit trickier. Um, owner-occupier borrowers are, are a little bit simpler. You kind of know what you need. Owner-occupier loan, P&I, variable in this market, variable popular. That That's the most popular, with an offset account, that's the most popular owner-occupier loan as of today. Now, for an investor, there's other questions to be asked, and it boils back down to your own situation. Now, the key advice that I'd actually give to investors is taking it up a notch and being like, if you're working with someone, ideally work with someone who understands investment lending a little bit and can guide you as to what's important. Because all of these terms and all of these options can be really, really confusing. What do you do? Which one should I take? And if you're just being presented the information and then making a choice, you know, you're not going to have as much information as the person guiding you. So if you can find someone guiding you that, you know, understands this stuff and can leverage off their experience working with others and trust that that process and trust them, that is probably going to help you more than anything. Now, drilling down into specifics, IOLP and I, for investors, interest only is attractive because it helps your cash flow, but it can lead to a reduction in your borrowing capacity, particularly with mainstream lenders. So, you know, you can probably think about your own portfolio, your own portfolio goals, and what are you going to do with the surplus cash flow? Is it going to help you, you know, uh, move the money elsewhere and produce another asset? Or are you comfortable 
taking those P&I repayments, paying a little bit more every month and effectively having your wealth build in two different ways, the capital growth component and the reduction of debt. So you have equity moving in both ways for you. So three or four years ago, the answer was clear. It was interest only makes sense to do. It's, it's Back then it was super easy to do. I remember back in the branch days, I used to be in the branch managing space. In ComBank, we would be able to click one button. So imagine this, rhythm is crazy, right? I get your card off you. Hey, sir, welcome to the branch. Hey, man, welcome to the... Can I get your card? Uh, yep, and check your ID. Yep, looks like you. Swipe. What was the loan number ending? Oh, ending in three, uh, 344. Four. Click. How many years? Oh, we'll chuck, we'll chuck a fiver on there, Arjun. We'll chuck a fiver on there. Five years. Um, all done. Thank you. Uh, have a great day. Anything else I can help you with? Oh, no, that's it. Literally, that conversation there, 30 seconds. Obviously, I threw in a few how's your day been and how's it going trying to show my team the ropes of that service and rapport building but 30 seconds interest only five years gone um crazy right but that was obviously a different time but um yeah sorry to cut you off there that was an interesting story for sure that's a great story and yeah that's kind of the way it used to be like there was no penalty for interest only loans so why wouldn't you if you can could if you're good with your money you take on that interest only loan and you decide your own repayments if you want to pay more you control the timing of it set it on your own terms in uh, mortgage broker land in investment mortgage broker land you often talk about control control and flexibility these are principles you talk about and when you can you can control your repayments with interest only repayment schedules versus P&I repayment schedules. The bank sets you a repayment path and it involves you paying down your loan. So you lose a little bit of control, but it's not as simple as that anymore because interest only loans cost you more in terms of an interest rate premium that you have to pay. They also have a revert rate, which occurs when the loan rolls over after the five years that you just talked about, which can present a cash flow risk for investors as well. So the answer to this is not as clear as it once was. I would say have a discussion and work out what you're comfortable with uh, and whether you plan on using that excess cash flow for your benefit. And also have a think about the borrowing capacity impact of P&I versus interest only with your sort of mainstream lenders and see what reduction that has for your portfolio size and see what your thoughts are on that, how it aligns with your goals. So that's probably the number one question we can ask when we're doing loan selections with people, P&I or, or interest only. Great points, man. And I think like there's a lot of it depends that makes it, makes it quite tougher, right? Because there's so many aspects. I think when it comes to lending, it just shows that it isn't as straightforward as going, here's my paperwork, I'm done. And this is why it pays to have the right team. And funnily enough, pays to have is an understatement. You don't even have to pay, right? The right mortgage broker will, will be able to support you through the bank paying. And that's where your team makes no doubt a really healthy difference to people's lives because this experience can help make those decisions smoother, but also that background, not only understanding investments, but understanding property as well as the finance side, that's where your team really comes in in its unique X factors. So mate, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it both looking at finance from the macro perspective, uh, some trends you may pick out as well to see that comes up and lastly down to the micro decisions investors make. For anyone wanting to reach out, how can they reach out to you and the team? Yeah, so you can reach out australianpropertytalk.com.au. Um, there's a contact us link there or www.confidencefinance.com.au. So run a mortgage broking business, you can reach us there. If you if you want any tips or insights on investment lending or owner-occupier lending, that's that's our bread and butter. So yeah, thank you, Arjun. That was a Thank pleasure. you, Ritam. And connect everyone with Ritam on LinkedIn. Um, Unreal dude there, shares a lot of insights and info. And uh, if you want your quick bites, quick hits in the mornings, 
there is a lot of insights there that will come through. And I've always said, I said quick bites and hits in the mornings. I put pressure and read them there every morning, get something out now, but uh, do follow them and get in touch. Cheers. Take care. Thanks, Arjun. Take care.